Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. You know, sometimes companies, as they start to bring new products to market in the medical device space, the, the processes, the systems, the approach that they have, uh, when they're early, uh, you, know, you know, they don't put a lot of thought into it, quite frankly, when it comes to regulatory strategies and quality system approaches and that sort of thing. Oftentimes, there's just an effort to kind of slap things together. Um, but, you know, it's, it is important, um, you know, regardless of the shape and size of your company, that, that you do spend some time thinking about those things because they are important and they are foundational to the growth and the success of your business. So whether you're a small company, a large company, a startup, an established company, uh, I would encourage you to listen to this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast where Mike Drews and I talk about some of the key tips and things that you should be thinking about when it comes to quality and regulatory. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And this morning, uh, I brought my good friend, Mike Drews, back to the podcast. Mike, welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast once again. Well, thank you, John. It's always terrific to, uh, to share the stage with you and to speak to your audience. So I look forward to our conversation. All right. Well, I, and I know in your work with vascular sciences that you do, you work with a lot of different companies, uh, shapes and sizes, big and small. And one of the things that, that we do as well, but one of the things that I see that, that is, um, can be challenging for um, a lot of companies is really making that transition from being that startup, that small company to being more of an established, larger company. And I thought you and I may, Maybe we could take a few moments today and, and talk about uh, making that transition from being a small company to a larger company, or, or maybe a better way to say it is transition from a startup company to a more established company. What are We could dive in and talk about some tips that might help these companies who are kind of in that transition phase. What do you think? I think that would be great, John, and you're exactly right. I One of the cool things about my job and my regulatory practice is that I do uh, get a chance to work with the entire span, the entire spectrum of companies from the smallest of the small, literally one or two people still working in their garage or their basement, all the way up through to the, the biggest of the big, you know, the, the Fortune 50 and Fortune 100 companies that have been around for, uh, you know, for, for decades, if not longer. And there are a lot of similarities and a lot of differences. One thing as we get started, John, I'd like to just point out, it's not just the company size in terms of employees that really matters as much anymore because um, uh, there are some companies that are quite small in terms of headcount, but because of outsourcing, uh, they're essentially running as a large company. One of the yeah. companies that I work with, actually, they only have about a dozen people on the payroll directly, but it's a publicly held company, and they basically farm out everything. So it's not just simply the company size that uh, that we need to to think about here. But anyway, let's continue. No, I think that's a really good point because I think, um, you know, it's easy to think that, oh, I'm a small company or, oh, I'm a large company or, or what have you. And, and uh, you know, the 
back in the day, we used to you know, kind of judge or gauge the size of a company almost exclusively by the number of employees that they have. But you just cited a really good example where you know, the, the company itself may only have 12 employees, but uh, it sounds like they have several products to market. And it sounds like they're working with a lot of other third-party resources, contract manufacturers and the like that really makes them much bigger than, than their employee headcount. And I think that's probably a good place to start because I, th- I think that there's... Um, well, I'll give you an example. Uh, I, I talked to this IVD company uh, a few years ago, and they were, had a few products to market uh, and had a, a pretty healthy pipeline of, of other products that they were planning to bring to the market over the next several years. And they said, they said to me, they said, John, we're a really small startup. I'm like, oh, wow. Really, how big are you? They said, "Well, we have 150 employees, and we're looking to hire another um, 50 employees in the next two months." But we're really small, and it kind of scratched my head a little bit because you know I'm like, "Mike, these guys aren't small. These that, that's <laughs> how do you define small? <laughs> oh yeah, how do you define small? Um, Bigger than a bread box, kind of a thing." <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, I think an interesting statistic that very few realize is that something like 80% of medical device companies uh, have less than 50 employees. And, and I think very few people realize that. I think you're right, John, and that's a statistic that I use many times myself. And I know, obviously, this is, uh, uh, we speak to, to, to mostly a medical device audience, um, but this is one of the, the big differences between the medical device industry versus the, the drug or the, even the biotech industry. And that is uh, the vast majority of medical device companies out there, with all due respect to my many friends at Medtronic and Boston Scientific and so on, that's not the bulk of this industry. What you just mentioned, that 80% of companies have 50 or fewer employees. So it's the, the very small, you know, a couple of dozen, or in some cases, literally a couple of people, uh, sometimes even still working in somebody's garage or basement, that makes up the vast majority of this business. And perhaps uh, this might ruffle the feathers of a few folks in our audience from the larger companies. But I think as a general rule, that's where usually and you can agree or disagree with this, John, but that's where usually the coolest and the most innovative uh, ideas come from. Yeah. There's, uh, without getting into a lot of the business issues, there's obviously a lot of advantages of a medium or a large company investing in a small company, uh, you know, taking what's called first right of refusal and, uh, and letting that small company take the risk. So, uh, so you're exactly right. The vast majority of, of the medical device industry is the smaller companies. And as we'll get into today, John, that poses some, some advantages, but also some challenges as well. Yeah. And, you know, and, and maybe this is, um, as we, we talk a little bit today, you know, whether it's that transition from small to large, maybe it's, it's a mindset thing, you know, and, and maybe the, the really what, what we can dive into today is how do companies make necessary transitions based on the stage or type of company that they are, regardless of size. Uh, you know, the company that you mentioned, 12 people, you know, I, I'm sure they didn't start with 12 people, probably started with a couple of people and it grew from there, but, but they've evolved over time. And as they've evolved, they've had, you know, different needs or different, different systems or, or different approaches uh, that they've needed to, to establish from a business strategy standpoint, uh, you know, across a number of different areas. So, you know, I guess one question, and I know you deal a lot with different regulatory agencies in addition to working with uh, the actual med device companies. 
in your opinion, do regulatory agencies have a different uh, of opinion or a different view or approach when working with a, a small startup versus a large established company? So that's a great question, John, uh, and thanks for the opportunity to have this discussion. So short answer is, theoretically, according to the regulation, the uh, the regulatory burden that a company has to uh, satisfy, in other words, the number of hoops that they have to jump through to get their particular pr- uh, product on the market, is totally agnostic, is totally independent of the nature of the company, be it size or revenue or how long they've been around or anything like that. In other words, theoretically, whether the company is two people, uh, employees, or uh, two million employees, that should not make a difference to the FDA or to any other regulatory agencies in, in the world. Now, notice I'm saying theoretically, that's not always reality, and perhaps we can talk about some examples uh, as we continue. Yeah, and I've always heard, like, you know, if, if, if you're like a startup company and you really don't have a regulatory footprint established with like FDA or Health Canada or what have you, that, you know, that the first submission or that first interaction um, is pretty important because you're starting to, in a manner of speaking, you're, you're really starting to establish a baseline with the agency. Um, would you agree with that that sentiment? I would absolutely agree with that, John. Uh, not to be sexist, but to use uh, a metaphor, it's like dating in your first date. You know, it's that first impression that that really matters. Um, and chances are, obviously, if you if you're working for a, a well-established company that's been around for a while, that you know has a number of products on the market, perhaps that might become a little bit less important because. Your company does have a history with the FDA, uh, whereas if you're working with a startup or a small company that doesn't have any products on the market that nobody has ever heard of before, and this is your first interaction with the agency, obviously they're not going to know you from, from Adam, so to speak. But I've seen it happen a number of times where even people coming from a large company, uh, it might be, it probably is, a different group of people that are going to the FDA uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, people that have been uh, dealing with the FDA in the past or maybe a different division of that larger company. So even in large companies, you still have that first date sort of a phenomenon. Yeah. And, and so, folks, maybe that's tip number one. Realize that uh, your interactions with regulatory agencies are important. Uh, you know, and, and it establish if it's your first interaction, you're establishing that baseline. Um, you know, you, this is I said another way. Uh, this is an indicator to to regulatory agencies like FDA. This is what they would expect of things to come from you and from your business. So that first interaction is important. And you know, Mike and I have talked a great deal about things like pre-submissions uh, in the past. And that's a really great way, if you're a startup bringing your first product to market, a really great way to establish that good baseline is through that pre-submission program. Once again, John, I agree 100%. I was just going to remind our audience of something very similar. You know, regrettably, it's still common practice, I think, across our industry, whether we're talking about small companies or large, for the first impression, the first date, with, if you will, with the FDA to be at the point of submission, whether it's a 510K or de novo or PMA or, or whatever it is. I think that's... Um, I don't want to go so far as to say that that's a mistake, but I think you're taking a huge regulatory risk 
because uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I'm certainly a fan, and I think you are as well, John, of going to the agency in advance of your submission, in the form of a pre-sub or something else, and uh, presenting your plan to the agency and making sure that everybody is uh, is on the same page, that we're all pulling in the same direction. I think that's good advice. Yeah, and and folks, even if you maybe already uh, had your first date with FDA or or another regulatory body, and maybe you know looking back, it didn't go as well as as you had hoped or as you planned. Yeah, there is some truth in first impressions are a, a bit lasting, but you have an opportunity to to kind of correct the situation and to improve that relationship. Uh, you know, I, I think today the 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 FDA that that we have in in the industry today is much more interested in, in building collaborations with with medical device companies. Now, you know, do remember at the end of the day they are you know a law enforcement agency. They they do have a responsibility to uphold regulations as well. But you still have an opportunity to to improve that situation. But you know, for those small companies do focus uh, a great deal of, of effort and, and attention and energy on on those interactions with the agency. Because think about it, as you bring that product to market, uh, this this now becomes, you know, your stake in the ground, so to speak, uh, of products that are going to, to enter into the marketplace that are going to be used for, you know, a variety of different procedures to help improve uh, lives. And if you know your product has some sort of issue, or you know you have some sort of uh, challenges or changes that need to to be made to your product at that point in time, you know how good is your relationship with the agency? How how well do you work with, collaborate with FDA, if and when those types of situations come up? Because that's really important too. You know, let's let's kind of fast forward to that startup that just launched the product and. And you know maybe they're getting a few bumps. You know maybe they're they're having a few issues in the field. Um, I, I can imagine that'll be a, a pretty important set of behaviors uh, to to make sure that are in place too for these types of companies. Because once you start, you know, the pre market is one thing, but once you go to market and you start managing post market activities, that's pretty important as well from a company standpoint. Absolutely agree, John. And before continuing on, I would just take that just a half a step further. So. Obviously, first impressions uh, matter very much, but if for whatever reason your first impression is not very positive, it doesn't go well in the pre-sub or you're not as prepared or FDA just doesn't see it the way you see it, um, it's not that if you have a suboptimal, to use that medical phrase, first impression. It's not the end of the world. It's not like you have to pack things up, you know, close your, your business and go home. Um, you can uh, go back, um, regrettably, uh, a, a fairly good chunk of my business is coming in, quite frankly, to companies who, uh, and cleaning up after somebody else's mess. In other words, they tried to do something themselves or they had some other regulatory consultant who just did not do a good job and now they're not in a good situation with the FDA. And now we have to basically go back and do damage control. And that's exactly what it is. It's damage control. So one of the first things I'll say in those situations is, look, we understand that, uh, you know, in the past, the company, you know, had some, uh, some, some bumps in the road, but there's a new game in town. And, uh, you know, let's start out with a, a fresh slate. So bottom line, it's always best if possible to make that good, that very good first impression. And I work really hard with companies to, to, to be successful at that. But in those scenarios where somebody did 
screw up or at the very least didn't do as good of a job as they could have, uh, it's not the end of the world. Right. Okay. So let's, um, let's, let's kind of imagine that, that a company, you know, is trying, they're at this point, they're at this transition, whether they're thinking they're going from small to large or startup to establish or, or whatever the, the transition point is, you know, they, they've been through, um, some, some, um, pre-submission activities, they've been through some 510Ks and, and they've been, or PMAs, whatever the case may be, and they've been successful getting products to the market. Um, let's think about or give some, some thought to, uh, you know, what are those types of things that, that these companies should be focused on now? You know, they, they've got a, a, you know, maybe a pipeline of products that are still in development, a few that are in the market. You know, are there certain behaviors that, that are now expected of, of a company at this state that would be different uh, if they were just that small, early stage, two-person startup working out of a garage? Is, does, does the behavior or mindset, does it need to change? Well, I, I would submit, John, that if they have the proper mindset, to use your word to begin with, then there is no change of mi- in mindset as the company grows. Um, but let me explain what I mean by that. And uh, we've talked a little bit uh, about the regulatory side. So let's shift over and talk you know, more about something uh, near and dear to your heart, and that is the quality side. And having a QMS in place and design controls and all of that, you know, most very small companies, especially companies that have literally just a few um, uh, employees, they obviously are not keen on a lot of paperwork, a lot of forms, a lot of red tape, a lot of process. And so when you talk about, you know, putting together a QMS, you know, having design controls in place and so on, their eyes, I don't know about you, John, but their eyes just sort of glaze over. What I usually say to those companies is, okay, it might not be necessary at this point to have a full, robust QMS in place. You don't have to have all the design controls. And I'm sure, John, you're thinking, oh my God, this is heresy. But let me, you know, let me explain what I mean. And then I'd love to hear your thoughts. There are things that you can be doing that a small company can be doing now, uh, even when they are still very, very small, uh, in order to make that transition to a larger company if, if their company is, is uh, acquired or something like that much easier later. Uh, I don't know if I'm explaining that very well, John, but maybe, maybe there's some examples that you can provide and how small companies can do exactly that. Sure. Um, one of the, the big things that I talk about, uh, folks, a quality system is something that should always be top of mind if you are a medical device company. Now, uh, you know, Mike is, is correct. And so let me give you a slightly different perspective uh, to, to explain, you know, uh, the this, this situation, especially as it relates to a quality management system. The thing that I always talk about is you need to right-size your QMS. And what I mean by that is it needs to reflect the shape and size and stage of company that you are. If you're that early stage startup, yeah, there's probably, you know, there's probably a few uh, elements of a quality system that apply to you. Um, but once you're that company that has um, gets you know into manufacturing and in, into production and uh, launching your product in the marketplace and selling your product, but your quality system should look a lot different at that point in time. It should have evolved to to be in alignment with the shape and size of company that you are at that point in time. Now, with respect to things like design controls and risk, I mean, there's there's levels to this for sure. I mean, if you're in early feasibility, early research, you know, um, design control, um, you know, may not you, you may not be at that point where it makes sense or it applies. But as you you know start to 
choose a concept and start to do formal testing and prepare you know, uh, products for animal studies and clinical evaluation and regulatory submissions and so on, you're certainly at a point where your design control practices need to become more formal and need to to be better established in the form of processes and procedures. So, you know, it's an evolution for sure. I agree, John. And by the way, I love that phrase that you used. I think I've heard you use it before, right-sizing your QMS. I think that's probably a John Spearism. I'm guessing. I, heard anybody <laughs> well, I don't have before. a trade. I don't have a trademark applied to it, but um, uh, well, maybe you should. Maybe but you're yeah. exactly right. You're exactly right, um, and that's you know. Thank you for helping to explain what I what I mean. Look, I, I've been um, you know I, I, another important part of my business on the the regulatory side, and to a lesser extent on the quality side. If I'm working with a, a startup and they're looking to uh, you know they have a potential. A uh, corporate partner who's looking to acquire them, uh, helping them uh, make themselves sort of attractive, so to speak, to the uh, to the larger company to make sure that their regulatory ducks are in order, to make sure that their quality ducks in, are in order. And similarly, on the large company side, many times a large company will ask me to help evaluate the regulatory strategy, to help evaluate the uh, the QMS of a small company to make sure that they can integrate that small company into that larger company in a, uh, let's say, in a a minimally burdensome way. And bottom line, uh, and this is what going back to the mindset that we talked about a few minutes ago, John, uh, if the company is doing what they should be doing and documenting what they should be documenting, I don't necessarily mean in a very formal uh, way with the right forms and stuff, I mean, this might sound, you know, uh, a bit uh, uh, like, you know, like a, a heretic in the regulatory or quality world, but I don't care about if, if a company is using the right form or something like that. What I'm much more interested in is the content. So if they have the content in place, that can always be put into the proper form later. But if for whatever reason they don't have the proper content, then now you you start to have problems. Am I wrong, John? Uh, you're you're not wrong, um, and, and it's it's a really great way to say it. I, I think sometimes when people think about quality systems and regulations, uh, the the knee jerk response is is that that's rigid, that's stifling, that's burdensome, it's red tape, and. You know, I'll be honest, um, folks. If if you feel that way about your quality management system. Uh, you probably have the wrong quality system. Uh, you probably don't have a quality system that's right size for your organization because Mike makes a, a, a terrific point. It's, it's less about making sure that you've checked the right box on the form. It's more about the content that you're capturing. Now, don't, don't mishear anything that Mike and I are saying. It is important to document decisions. It is important to document this information, but focus on the content. You know, don't get so hung up on, on, is it on this or is it on that? Or is it here? Or is it there? Do, do get organized and do make sure that you're, you are focusing on the content. And I would even take it at maybe a slight step further, the intent behind what it is that you're doing, make sure that, that you're documenting your uh, decision-making process, your rationale, your explanation, Good, prudent engineering to to bring in a Mike Drew is Mike Drew's ism. <laughs> that was hard to say, Mike. <laughs> well, thank you for for reminding the audience of something that you and I have talked about many times over the years. What I call prudent engineering, and just one last tiny bit on that forms uh, issue. Um, regrettably, 
after you know being in this business now for a little over 25 years, both as a professional biomedical engineer as well as a regulatory consultant, I do meet people in companies and even at the FDA who I really think sometimes they put more emphasis on the forms rather than the content. Yeah. And what I often remind them, and I've said this, John, at the FDA before, I've said, look, uh, there are hundreds of parameters that will affect the safety and efficacy of a medical device. But I guarantee one of them will never be the form that we put that information on. So, yes, forms are important, procedures are important, you know, and so on. But let's not lose track of the big picture. Let's not, you know, forget about what matters most. Yeah. Folks, I want to remind you all that I'm talking with Mike Drews. Mike is the president of Vascular Sciences, and he's a regulatory expert that works with medical device companies of all shapes and sizes all over the world, as well as regulatory agencies like FDA and Health Canada. And, you know, as we're talking about this topic of making a transition from, from whether we call it startup to established or small to large, however you want to describe that some of the things that we're hitting on today are the importance of sound regulatory practices. Uh, we're starting to talk a little bit about the importance of sound quality management system practices as well and being focused on the content, the information about your products and processes. And this is you know, a, a big part of what we're all about at Greenlight Guru as well. We built the only EQMS software platform for the medical device industry in the world. Uh, so if you'd like to learn a little bit more about our software platform and how we might be able to help you transition from being just a checkbox mentality or a compliance mentality, or I have to do this, to fill out this form, to really architecting your quality management system in a way that's right size for your company, you should go over to www.greenlight.group to learn more information. So Mike, I think one of the big mistakes that I see a lot of companies make uh, is you know, they're, they slap a lot of things together, you know, to kind of, uh, I guess, revisit some of the things that we've chatted about this morning, but they slap a lot of things together. They get up, they, they go on the internet and they buy a bunch of forms so they can check <laughs> some boxes and, and they, they don't put any thought or, 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 um, real strategy into the, the systems that they're establishing in their business. You know, they're, they're really just trying to, it's like a mad dash to get this product launched and then they launch it and they don't ever go back and and spend any time on their processes or their systems, and they just keep adding to it, adding to it, adding to it. Um, my favorite example, favorite might not be the the best choice of words, but but I'll go with it for a moment. Is you know I I worked with this company a few years ago, and they had you really transitioned from being that small startup to kind of a mid st- uh, stage company. You know they had a handful of products to market. Uh, you know, they were around 30 or 40 employees at that point in time. So they're, you know, they were a decent sized company, but they never really uh, focused on the architecture of their quality system. They never focused on the architecture of the regulatory uh, framework for their, for the products. And they just kept adding to, adding to, you know, they would issue themselves a Kappa and the result of the Kappa would be to create yet another procedure. And, and they, they were just, they were just throwing paperwork at it, you know, and it, it just was with poor intention. And I, you talked about, Sometimes you're brought in to help companies that that um, maybe need some mitigation work on uh, regulatory or quality. Um, cleaning up t- somebody else's mess. Cleaning up somebody else's mess. But you know, for a company that might be find themselves in that situation, what should they do? Well, 
first of all, let me say, John, to me, a lot of what we've talked about today and indeed a lot of what we've talked about in our many conversations over the years uh, comes back to mindset, comes back to what I would call regulatory logic or to perhaps introduce a spin on that quality logic. You know, to me, it's not the um, it's not the forms. It's not the regulatory requirements. It's not even the the process. It's the it's the it's the thinking. It's what you referred to earlier as the prudent engineering. And whether we're talking about a, a very small startup or a very very large, well-established medical device company, ideally, that regulatory logic, that quality logic, that you know mindset, whatever whatever you want to call it, that should be the same. Um, that's that's point number one. And then second point, what that what should they do? Well. And I think this is something, John, that you and I have talked about in, in some of our quality discussions. I find it very interesting that, you know, all companies are required to have quality management systems in place um, that meet the regulatory requirements. But why would anybody assume that just because somebody has a QMS that meets the regulatory requirements, that it actually works? You know, I don't make that assumption. Right. Uh, of course, unless, of course, they're using the green light software to. <laughs> then obviously, then you know, then we know for sure it's going to work, right? No, but the point that I'm trying to make is very simple. We we're very used to thinking about measuring the efficacy of our device, but how often do you hear people measure the efficacy of our systems, including our our QMS, our CAPAs, our you know complaint handling, uh, everything else? And so I've made the suggestion to a number of companies over the years, why don't you consider purposely injecting a problem into your, into your system somewhere to see if your system is capable of detecting it? You know, measuring the efficacy of our system. But think about it this way, John, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this. What good is having a quality management system, even if it meets the regulatory requirements, but the system, for whatever reason, just doesn't work or it doesn't yeah. work as well as it could? I mean, to me, that's just a colossal waste of time and money. Am I, am I, uh, am I just naive, John, or, or uh, well, flat out stupid? Well, I don't think you're naive nor stupid um, <laughs> uh, on this topic or, or, frankly, any other that we've talked about because it's a really good testament. And, and I'll use a, a specific example that, that I hear sometimes is, you know, sometimes companies are, are – um, they have a little bit of fear of transitioning to like an eQMS system because it, you know they, they can open a drawer and they can pull out piles of paper and they can touch and feel and you know see the binders or what have you. So you know they, they take comfort in that in some respects because you know it's they it, they they feel that they can see it. That therefore it's therefore safer and that sort of thing. So sometimes I get challenged with, hey, what about? Uh, uh, backups and disaster recovery and security and all these sorts of things. And you know, it's like, yeah, we address all these things. And interestingly enough, you know, a lot of other, a lot of companies, every, just about every, I, I would venture to, to guess that every medical device company today is reliant on some sort of electronic documentation or system or, or what have you, whether it be a server or, or, or ERP or, or whatever the case may be. And the interesting thing that I, I think a lot of companies don't think about, they, they all have procedures in place for like disaster recovery, right? That describe this, these are the things that we need to do in the event that there's some sort of disaster, you know, pick the disaster, whatever the case may be. But, but companies never, never test that procedure, that disaster recovery procedure uh, until they have to, and uh, short That's a short story. Example, John. 
And, short, and that's not the time to find out no, that it doesn't work. <laughs> no. Short story on this. I, I was working with a, a mid-sized company a few years ago. Um, they... Um, they they had a there was some some storms um and um the storms a lot of hail a lot of wind and it had uh ripped a hole into their roof of their manufacturing facility and rain was and it happened as of course these things tend to do it happened over the weekend when nobody was was at the facility and on site um but what had happened is you know for like a, a day uh straight rain was coming in through this hole in the roof that had that had ripped open during a storm and you know on monday morning when when the staff arrived there's you know puddles of water everywhere uh product what you know they were making needle products uh, some of their cannula had already started to rust and all these sorts of things so big disaster and and um that was the first time that they ever uh tried to to uh, apply their disaster recovery procedure and let's just say it had a lot of holes um we we had to create process on the fly because we weren't prepared now that might be an extreme case but but it does illustrate the point that you're making is you know institute some some failures or some errors into you know into your processes into your system so that you know you can determine the efficacy of those before it's too late before you're forced to and you have to and, and now everything's on fire well, I think, John, for the benefit of our audience, that's absolutely wonderful advice. I highly recommend it. And I would just end my part of our discussion today with a, a very simple personal example. Um, you know, obviously, we all know today that there's uh, a lot of advantages and a lot of conveniences of, of doing uh, electronic records and electronic forms and e-signatures and all that kind of stuff. But as we talked about before, it really comes back to the content. So my personal example, my wife and I uh, are literally in the process of selling our home. We just uh, executed our purchase and sale agreement. It was all done electronically. Um, you, you click here for the initials, you click here for the signature, and you're done. But it's not a substitute for not knowing the content. When we bought our home uh, about 13 or so years ago, um, of course, you know, nobody was using the electronic signatures yet. So we had to go to the attorney's office and we had to, you know, physically initial and physically design. But here's the point that I'm trying to make, John. If there's a problem in the future, I don't think any judge or jury is going to care whether it, uh, the, the, the agreement was executed on paper or electronically. What it comes down to ultimately is the content. Yes. And that's the most important thing. And that I think sometimes, um, gets a little diminished in terms of the importance of all these things. I agree with you hundred uh, percent. And I'll leave the audience with, with one final tip and, and we'll wrap up today. You know, one of the things that, that Mike just stressed is the importance of the content. Now I, I do want to, I do want to stress uh, in addition to that, what, don't mishear what he's saying. It doesn't mean create another form and another document and add to a pile of stuff. You know, I think <laughs> I think sometimes companies. Yeah, remind. I'm sorry to interrupt, John. It just reminds me of the um, uh, Al Gore Paperwork Reduction Act that was yeah. um, uh, thirty thousand pages long. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, and, and you probably have, have experienced this a time or two, but but I've actually heard uh, regulatory professionals that. Uh, have a scale in their regulatory department uh, to weigh the the five ten k submission documents oh before they Don't submit get me it. Started on that. That'll be the topic of a different discussion. <laughs> so it's not about just throwing more paper at it. It's about being focused, and really is about right sizing your 
your company processes and procedures and your approach to regulatory and, and quality. So uh, do really f- spend some time on that. And, and like Mike's right, regardless of if you're paper or electronic or this or that or what have you, uh, focus on the content. Make sure that the things that you're documenting uh, are appropriate for the stage of activity that you're involved with and, and do not ignore quality. Do not ignore regulatory because building your company foundation and business processes with regulatory and quality in mind will help you ensure that you're, you're, you're building a better business and better products in the, in the, in the long run anyway. So Mike, any well, parting I, I words? I would agree with you more, John, and just a tiny one last bit I would add, and then we'll wrap this up. I would like to think that all companies and all of us working in this business are doing all the things that you and I uh, are discussing today, not because they're required, not because the U.S. government or some other uh, government in some other place in the world says that you have to do it, but because it is the right thing to do. It does make uh, sense. It is prudent engineering. That's, you know, call me naive, John, but but that's what our goal should be here. Uh, Michael, we're going to let that be the, the last word for today. And, and once again, thank you so much for uh, being uh, a guest of ours on the Global Medical Device Podcast. Um, folks, if you want to uh, connect with Mike Drews, uh, reach out to him. You can find him on LinkedIn. Uh, he's with Vascular Sciences. Uh, you'll you'll listen to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Uh, Mike and I have had several conversations over the years, a lot of content, a lot of webinars. He knows his stuff when it comes to regulatory and no better person for you to reach out to and talk to uh, about regulatory strategy, whether this is your, your first interaction with a regulatory agency or uh, your 100th interaction, it really doesn't matter. Um, Mike is a good guy to have in your corner. And as we've talked a little bit today about quality management systems, we're all about uh, making sure that the processes and procedures and your approach to quality is right size for your organization. And that's what we do at Greenlight Guru. So I encourage you to if you have an interest in, in improving your efficiency and improving your throughput and focusing on the content, then you should go over to www.greenlight.guru to request more information. And once again, thank you all for listening. Uh, this is the host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. <laughs>